This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And as the conflict in Syria enters its sixth year, this morning we've got the privilege of speaking with foreign correspondent and Middle East editor for Newsweek, Janine D. Giovanni. For 25 years, Janine's reported on the human cost of conflict, including wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Balkans, and conflicts on the African continent. And since the beginnings of the Arab Spring, she's been focused on the Middle East region and has made many research trips to Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, and Syria. Her most recent book is Dispatches from Syria. The morning they came for us and Janine's in Australia for numerous events including one tonight with the School of Life and she joins us by phone and it's really great to have you on Triple R Janine. Good morning. And uh, you went to Syria at the very beginning of the war and wrote about I suppose the lack of international efforts to prevent it uh, back then. As we move into six years now of war in Syria it seems that we're still paralysed over what to do. I wonder what you see is the way forward. Well, um, if I knew that answer, I'd, I'd know more than Stefan de Mistura, the UN special envoy who's trying to negotiate an end to the war. Um, Syria is possibly the most complicated um, war I've ever reported, complicated and cynical um, in many ways, because I've, I've gone many times since the war started um, on both sides, on rebel side and, and government side. Um, and in that time, what we've seen is, is a massive proxy war develop, meaning that on the government side, we have um, President Assad being aided by Russia, by Iran, it, to some smaller extent, China. Um, and on the rebel side, we have uh, Qatar, Saudi, uh, Turkey, previously the U.S. and Europe to a much lesser extent. Um, so with this number of countries uh, in the middle of it, plus the added addition of the Islamic State, um, it's really not a war on one side. It's, it's a war on, on many, many sides. And in the middle of it are civilian people who are suffering terribly. And we've seen, um, I mean, big changes happened this year, I suppose. We've got, you know, a new UN Secretary General in, in January and also a new US President. And do you think this will make any difference? Well, Antonio Guterres, the new um, president of the UN, is is a fantastic man, and I mean, a much, in my view, um, uh, much welcomed from Ban Ki Moon, who was pretty ineffective. I think. Um, I think Guterres had been head of the UN Refugee Agency for many years, and so he has a strong humanitarian bent. He also um, believes very much in conflict prevention. Um, which you know isn't isn't the case here in Syria, but but will be the case in for many other conflicts around the world. So what I'm saying is he's a very hands-on Secretary General. He's someone that cares very deeply. He's been in the midst of the refugee situation, the Syrian refugee crisis, and so he he has a lot of empathy and compassion. Um, President Trump is is a worry, a, a huge worry on many, many fronts, Syria for me particularly, because I feel that um, he doesn't understand it. He doesn't have the, the slightest clue of what's going on there. Um, he's appointed a foreign secretary who has no experience in government as well. Um, Trump is friendly, as we know, with the Russians, so therefore his allegiance will be more on the side of President Assad and the Russians. Um, and he also sees the war as a very uh, simplistic one. That is, it's it's a war on terror, and that's it. And that not that is not what the war is only about. It's not just a fight between President Assad and the Islamic State. So, all of these factors um, worry me, and I believe that they will make it more difficult to to end the war. Uh, meanwhile, in Geneva, the, the talks, um, Geneva 4, they're known as, this is the fourth round of negotiations to end the war, the first being in 2012, wrapped up yesterday um, with very little uh, to show. Um, Stefan de Mistura, the tireless diplomat that's been trying to end this war for the past few years, said the train is in the station, we just need the accelerator. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. Um, 
but uh, in my view, there's still bombing, there's still starvation, there's still a country that's ripped apart. And I was really interested in reading your book, uh, The Morning They Came For Us, which is all about your time, I guess, as a war correspondent in Syria and, and um, charting people's stories and the, the horrific things that go on there. But I was fascinated for you to write that in the time before then, um, particularly in your work around Bosnia and following um, the, the stories and um, seeking to bring war criminals to justice, that you were exhausted then and kind of um, were warned from getting involved in another uh, very violent, bloody conflict overseas but went to Syria anyway to find out what was going on there. I wonder from a personal perspective, what drew you to Syria back in 2012? Well, you know, this is what I do, basically. Um, And I tend to focus on on one conflict for a very long time and get immersed in it and try to understand the roots of it, understand the culture of the people, understand... um, how it works, the mechanisms of it. I'm not very good at going in and out of things. Um, I tend to get really bogged down, um, which, you know, (laughs) isn't always great for your mental health because you do get immersed into the minutia of the details. And uh, it's painful, you know, especially if you... I have a child, um, and, of course, the war in Syria has been a war targeted against children. Um, So many of them have been killed. Uh, There's been attacks, relentless attacks on medical facilities, on hospitals, on doctors, um, on women. Um, So it's, it's not very easy to be a human being and stand by and see this happen and feel powerless. And as Dylan said, you were reporting in the Balkans in, in, and from that experience you could sense in Syria that it was a country about to head into war and I I suppose not many people have been in multiple war zones to be able to get that sense and one thing that uh, I was you know hurt to read was the impunity that many of the war criminals uh, and those who perpetrated uh, war crimes uh, walked around with in in the sort of Balkan states and is this also a concern for for Syria and other countries in the Middle East that we will see people that are perpetrating crimes now walking around with impunity later? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is the real horror of war, amongst other things. Um, It's it's that the people that commit these heinous crimes, you know, rape, um, torture, uh, incarceration, very rarely see the inside of a, a war crimes tribunal, let alone prison. Um, there's, I think the number of, of people that have gone to jail for rape in Bosnia, and we know that in Bosnia there were, there were technically rape camps set up where women were held for weeks, months, um, raped up to 16 times a day. And I would talk to women now, um, in, in, you know, current times who still have to face their, their rapists in the villages where they live and, Guess who are ashamed? The women, not the men. The women are the ones that have to drop their eyes in shame, not the men who did these crimes. So I think it's a real misconception that we often have that, um, that you know, people get punished for what they do. It's more, it's more the, in my experience of, of all the, I mean, I think I've covered 16 wars, something like that. Um, the, the real, it's an exception that people are brought to justice it's more likely that they will get away with what they've done. So that means if your family were killed, if your daughter was raped, if your husband was taken away to a a concentration camp and slaughtered there, you'll probably see very little justice. Um, So imagine what that does. That breeds a kind of cycle of hatred and, and retribution and vengeance. We're speaking with Middle East editor for Newsweek, Janine D. Giovanni, and her um, most recent book is Dispatches from Syria, The Morning They Came for Us. And Janine, we rely on people like you in doing um, incredibly courageous and important work in telling the stories of people who are caught up in conflict zones. But I wonder what your perspective is on how we, particularly in the West, I guess, fully comprehend and understand what's going on in Syria, given the challenges around access and, and, and journalists travelling to the country? It's really hard. It's, it's incredibly hard. I'll be honest with you. Um, it's even hard for me because um, since, I'd say, 
2012-2013, the rise of the Islamic State, um, mainly in northern um, Syria, has made it difficult, impossible for, for journalists to pass to cross the border, let's say, from Turkey and to go um, into Syria because their tactic is to kidnap and kill um, journalists. And two of my friends, James Foley and Stephen Satloff, American journalists, were both kidnapped and both beheaded. Um, Stephen Sutloff was, was a lovely guy, just really in my eyes a kid who was starting out as a reporter and, you know, for doing his job, he ended up in an orange jumpsuit in the desert uh, being beheaded on, on camera. Um, I sometimes am in touch with his parents and um, his, you know, his mother basically saying, or his father, can you tell us anything about what you remember about Steve because we miss him so very much? It's just heartbreaking. Um, really, really heartbreaking. And last year, uh, I mean, you got a lot of media interest from a, from a tweet and an article that you wrote saying that, uh, you know, you felt that that um, as, a, as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent, um, that siege in Aleppo showed that, you know, we'd failed or, you, you know, you felt like you'd failed. And that that comment that you made drew a lot of interest and, and a lot more interest than some of the reporting you'd done on the actual yes. crimes. And I wonder, I mean, what what does that say about how well, we try to relate to conflict, do you think, those maybe, of us in safe countries? You know, maybe um, in some way it was so shocking when that happened to me because literally, you're right, of all the things I've written of all the, the kind of shocking reports I've, I've done from Syria or Iraq, um, it, it was one morning out of desperation when Aleppo fell, you know, sitting in my house in Paris and, and looking at the faces of people who are about to be slaughtered. Um, I thought, I mean, thank God, the worst thing that we were fearing did not happen. Um, and I was on the phone talking to friends of mine who are UN officials and I was in Grozny, Chechnya, when it fell in 2000 to Russian forces, and my greatest fear was that the Russians would come into East Aleppo and just begin to slaughter the men um, and basically just take no prisoners. And So I was deeply concerned about this, and I was talking to human rights people, and we were all um, frantic, but at the same time, it was just so obvious that there was going to be absolutely no intervention on any part no humanitarian intervention you know no one was going to come in and save the day and the difference between bosnia um of which i was a really young reporter very idealistic but the work my colleagues and i did really did make a difference because we hung in there we kept reporting from sarajevo we refused to let go and in the end it had an effect on policy and there was humanitarian intervention it took three years, but there was something. Um, this, I just knew nothing was going to happen, and Aleppo was going to fall. And watching the pictures of people flooding out of it looked like something out of Dr. Shivago in the cold, in the rain, in the snow. And having worked with refugees for so long, I knew these people, I knew how they felt. You know, I knew they had nowhere to go. I knew they were frightened. I knew they were hungry. I knew they were carrying children. And I just suddenly thought, you know, I just can't, I can't believe I still do this and nothing ever comes of it. So I just wrote this tweet, which just said, um, it said, um, after 25 years of, of uh, human rights reporting, Aleppo falls, um, I feel like a failure, something like that. And it just, it went viral. And, I mean, it must be incredibly difficult to, to keep going, to keep doing what you're doing when, um, you know, some of the most, um, I guess, horrific or, uh, you know, difficult reporting that you're doing goes um, without impacting on any substantial change. And you've written that, I guess, the people that you have, a, a who you speak to, whose stories you relate through your work, that you're kind of... I don't know, your debt in a way is to them to tell their stories, their stories that aren't getting told. Is that what keeps driving you as well, speaking to these people and, and telling their stories in the hope that that will lead to some kind of change? If it was me, you know, and I was a woman um, living, let's say, in any part of Syria. Let's say I was a Christian woman who um, 
who had been abducted by the Islamic State, and my children were taken away from me, and I was brought to Raqqa, and I was raped, and my husband was killed, and I had no idea where my children were, and I was told that I was a dog and, um, and uh, treated like a piece of dirt, and I managed to escape, and I got to a place in Turkey, and I met an Australian journalist, or an American journalist, and I told them my story. I would want the world to know what happened to me. And I just feel that, you know, I never, I've never been a good reporter in the way that, you know, I've never been able to shove a microphone in someone's face and say, tell me what you feel. And I'm, I'm not good at press conferences and things like that. But I'm really good at spending a really long time sitting down with someone and, you know, drinking a lot of tea and smoking a lot of cigarettes and, and um, spending sometimes weeks or months with people to unravel what happened to them in the hopes that people like you or people who are listening to this will understand something that's happening on the other side of the world but happening to someone that could be you or me. And I just always think, I mean, in the back of my mind, um, wouldn't, wouldn't you want someone to tell your story? If something really horrible happened to you and you had no justice and you had no power. And powerlessness is, you know, one of the most extreme and and horrifying emotions. You know, watching something happen and not being able to do it. So I think yeah, I think I think that's why I do it. Um that and I guess, you know, on a very personal level I was brought up in a Catholic family. I had a really wonderful dad who was a very um you know, not fundamentalist Christian or anything, but just like Christian at heart. And he, you know, very early on in my life just told me that, you know, we're on this planet to help other people and to look after each other and to, you know, if people are in need, you you have an obligation and a right to do that. So I don't think I could really go to bed at night knowing that there's so much stuff out there. And if I have a talent to do something, something small, which is just... um go to these places, write about it, and, and bring it back, then that's my, that's my duty, I guess. That's my obligation. Well, there's so much, of course, that we could talk with you about, but we out of time this morning. You are speaking tonight, though. If people um, want to ask you questions or find out more about your work, sure. um, you're in conversation yeah. at the School of Life with a psychotherapist and writer, Piers Newton-John. I don't know if on the couch as well. Or <laughs> I'm literally looking forward to it. Yeah, it's I bet. Be so interesting. <laughs> oh, it'll be so interesting, I think. Yeah. Um, it's at the State Library tonight at 6 o'clock, and I checked, and I think there might be a couple of tickets left for that if you're quick. Um, the School of Life tonight, and uh, Janine D. Giovanni on the couch with the psychotherapist and writer Piers Newton John. I think it will be an incredible evening. And thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Not at all. It's my pleasure. And this Wednesday is International Women's Day and probably one of the busiest weeks of the year for Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victoria Women's Trust. Uh, but she's made it in here and it's great to have you for what I hope is not the first and only time this year. It's always good to have you on Triple R. Thanks, Mary. It seems a lot of, a lot later in the year, doesn't it? Already. I know. I know. Well, it's because summer came <laughs> <laughs> came in autumn or something like that. Um, but I, I think you know we could go back to the beginning of this year, Mary. Many people spent the end of their January going on women's rallies around the world. We saw sixty countries where women uh, and men took to the streets um, raising concerns about uh, the rights of women under the new President Trump in the US and I suppose that was uh, a really wonderful surprise to me that that happened. Um, what were your thoughts at that time? Oh, well, certainly the marches and the, you know, marches in the states themselves in Washington, uh, were hugely affirming and, and I think solidarity building. And I, I think, I think Trump's election signals now it's a great test for American democracy and American culture and institutions. He's there. He's been voted in. He didn't win the popular vote, <clears throat> but he's there. But, uh, you know, it's it's fairly galling, I think, for a lot of women in particular to to know and understand that uh, somebody with such a past in terms of his predatory behaviour towards women could in fact achieve high office. So it's been a great smack in the face in that regard. But let's see now how the democratic institutions, the rule of law and so on play out. I mean, it's quite interesting, 
you know, just um, coming here this morning and, you know, yet another sort of presidential tweet uh, making outrageous accusations. And, you know, there's a certain madness now upon the White House. And the only way I think that American society will see all of this through is by falling back on the strength of its institutions. And you've spent quite a bit of time in the, U- in the US. I know you were there last year attending a meeting that was kind of led by Vice, then Vice President Joe Biden. Do you have much faith or hope, I guess, that those institutional structures that are there are strong enough to ensure that we don't kind of fall back to the dark ages? Uh, look, I do, actually. but And it's ironic now. Yes, I had the privilege of attending... Uh, what was then the first gender equality summit put on by the White House, I rather suspect it might well be the last <laughs> in some time. Um, but it, it was quite a remarkable gathering and I, I think that, I, I think that there are so many of our democratic institutions that, that aren't out there visible. Like in our country, for example, one of our great democratic mainstays, in my view, is compulsory voting. Um, you don't you don't see the institution, but it's there, and I think it's I think it's one reason why we won't go down the path of a sort of Trump um, hard right wing uh, fake news type of path because too many Australians turn out to vote. But I I'm fairly confident about American culture and society, but I'm I'm not at all. You know, I wasn't romanticising women's support for Clinton last year. I mean, I think she was a great candidate. Um, and I'm disappointed that there were some women in particular, notable women in America who didn't endorse her. But when I was there in June last year, there were, there were women attending Trump rallies who couldn't part quickly enough with their $20 to buy t-shirts that said things like, um, Hillary sucks, but not like Monica. Uh, so it's pretty galling to see women behave in that fashion, but, uh, you know, um, that's that's part of life's rich fabric, isn't it? Well, it is, and I suppose reproductive rights is a major concern. Well, you know, the sad reality is that women's reproductive rights are just not guaranteed. They're not guaranteed around the West, certainly not guaranteed. They're not guaranteed in Queensland. No, they're not, um, and and it's not. they're not guaranteed. Like, abortion law reform in this state is still contested, even though we thought it was settled in 2008. So the sad reality is that I think until until we see women in at least equal numbers in all of our decision-making forums across our parliaments, nationally, states, local governments and, and corporations and so on, then women have got to be much more vigilant about safeguarding basic rights. And this is where I guess the, the challenge for achieving gender equality is is in some ways difficult and multifaceted because there's overt displays of, of sexism and misogyny and the clearly gendered decisions um, like that of the Trump administration to curtail um, the activities of NGOs who are advocating for abortions overseas. But even domestically, things like the uh, the ruling by the Fair Work Commission recently here, um, you know, on the face of it, isn't it really a gendered decision, but it will um, inevitably that sort of thing, if implemented, impact disproportionately on women? It will impact disproportionately because many more women than men <clears throat> are in the casual, casualised workforce. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, uh, and, and they go, they go in and out of casualised work in, in the hospitality sectors, for example, because the, the time, the hours suit them, the, the flexible times in terms of also juggling their other responsibilities. Leaving aside that, I mean, I think it's a really bad decision, um, um, for our country overall. But you're right, Dylan, in that a lot of impacts of policy are more gendered than people realise. And so, you know, women face these double and triple whammies, uh, across the economy in terms of, you know, the amount of caring work they're doing, the amount of unpaid work, they do more than that than men. Uh, the fact that they're, they're they're having to work in positions which don't have a lot of security. The fact that they don't have a lot of discretionary income to put into savings for retirement. And you've been at the helm, Mary, of the Victorian Women's Trust for I think two decades now. Yes. Is that right? Had my anniversary last 
uh, a fortnight before our magnificent breakthrough event in November last year. So, uh, I mean, it's a good time maybe to, to benchmark where we're at with, with women's rights and I suppose successes and we have a lot to talk about in that area. Well, it's funny, you know, I, I hadn't come prepared for that, but as soon as you said it, I thought, well, you know, when I first started at the Victorian Women's Trust, we were actually running, uh, we were running workshops on, on, uh, using the internet. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and now, however, isn't it interesting? So that women have become, uh, you know, much more prodigious and have taken to technology in that regard. And, you know, many more women use Facebook, I think, than, than men and so on. But, um, and yet, you know, women still struggling to assert themselves in the whole STEM area and, and to be taken seriously in a whole lot of senior decision making ranks, um, across um, you know, the IT sector. So, you know, there's, and again, back in, you know, 20 years ago, we were running, um, we were running financial literacy, uh, seminars and seminars on superannuation and for women to take control of their finances and become independent. But structurally and less visibly, the institutions like superannuation, um, they're, they're just not fair. Uh, in terms of the treatment of women in our country, and one of the one of the uh, outcomes we want to see from our breakthrough event last November is to to look at our superannuation system, for example, and say if you wanted a universal system of retirement savings that was fair for women, what would it look like? Because the current one doesn't do the job. And uh, I mean, while we have so many challenges and. And uh, to sort of overcome, I suppose, uh, you and I were both at the women's footy on the weekend. I don't know, were you supporting Carlton? I was definitely going for the no, Bulldogs. No, no, I'm, 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 a, I'm a Carlton tragic. I'm, <laughs> I thought you were. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an ambassador, a proud ambassador for the Carlton football I know club. all the words of the Carlton song now, though, because I played it about... 10 million times because they <laughs> not only won but they got to play it twice because they won and then to run on to and to run off to anyway. <laughs> Look, I, I yes, I was there and uh, I never thought I'd see the day when I'd voluntarily turn up at 11.30 <clears throat> to see a football match but I, I just, I love it because I love football anyhow and, and I love sport. I can't wait to get home tonight and watch the cricket, for example. But I do think... Uh, maybe it's self-evident, but what's happening in women's football is a much greater and much more exciting story than simply sport. Uh, and what we're witnessing, and it really is a very historic era, I think, because it's yet another platform that's been built from which women can showcase their capacity and their talents and be affirmed. And I, you know, I mean, I was a country girl, and do you know what? The the women's football matches I've been to in this season, it, I just feel as I'm at a country grand final. Uh, and the crowd is so good-natured. I love seeing so many men there. I love seeing men your age there, Dylan, mm. uh, and older men. And I love hearing the men sitting behind me comment, commenting about the, the quality of the skills on display, and but not in any patronising way. I just think it's a really great statement about where our community is at and able to achieve great things together. Well, I, I haven't taken my girls to any football games ever before except for the Community Cup which they love uh, and I've taken them numerous times to see the women's game and they just couldn't wait to leave before the men started and I'm like <laughs> no let's just at least start because it was a double banger let's at least start for stay for a quarter and I, I mean a lot of people took it's a, it's a different crowd basically going. Mm. It's a lot more sort of community oriented I mean my social media feeds full of, of people friends who are going to the game each week and are excited about it and know the players and that sort of thing and going along with people who haven't been to the football before but for me it's been interesting watching the the social media feeds of a number of teams that I, I follow on social media um it's kind of it seems as a critical mass of people who are immediately willing to kind of jump on the, the trolls and there are still trolls out there who will say things like oh a certain player didn't kick any goals today you know she's overweight she hasn't got any skills but people are responding to that now and mm -hmm. and telling people to kind of get back in their box which um i think is a, is a really positive thing mm. i think it's a really positive exciting development uh, and I guess what it reinforces though I think is that uh, this kind of platform for equality is fantastic but it's it's back to those structural and institutional 
arrangements in our society that actually that, that then keep holding women back. So it's great to have women showcasing their talents in this way uh, and for men to be supportive of the change. But it's another thing to have women in working in casualised parts of the economy and, in fact, still having half the superannuation balance as a man does. So the prospects of women going into their retirement years... Uh, in poverty and at risk of homelessness are sharper than they are for men. So we've got to get those structural changes addressed in our society before we can see the kind of fuller equality that's going to make us much better off. So Wednesday is International Women's Day 2017. Um, there's lots of events happening. If you want to look it up online, there's um, we'll actually be speaking about uh, an event um, coming up on Wednesday night um, very, very soon on Grapevine, um, the Hylas Maris Memorial Lecture on at La Trobe University, which is happening. But there's lots of other things. What will you be doing, Mary, on Wednesday? Uh, well, that's interesting you speak of the, the Hylas Maris Lecture because one of the really exciting things that I think a lot of your listeners... Um, should prick their ears up, especially women who have had a connection with La Trobe University because La Trobe University uh, has its 50th anniversary on International Women's Day this week and and the Women's Trust is proudly partnering La Trobe this year on a brilliant initiative called Square the Ledger. And this is essentially, and I, th- I suspect L- La Trobe is probably the first university in the country to do it, They're going to spend the next year, until International Women's Day next year, urging every woman who's been a graduate or had a connection, a studying or staff connection to La Trobe in those 50 years to contact the university, contact the Square the Ledger site and tell their story. Uh, their story of what they've done, how they've made impacts across their communities and so on. So it's, you know, 20 years ago, uh, the Women's Trust created an exhibition called Ordinary Women, Extraordinary Lives and it was amazing and it toured around Victoria. So taking a leaf out of that book, um, the Trust is really pleased to partner La Trobe on a first ever initiative which is to honour and acknowledge the contribution that La Trobe women, La Trobe University women have made to community and society. So where I'll be on Wednesday is at Parliament at one o'clock helping... Claire Wright and others at the university launched this fabulous initiative. Well, there you go. Well, we'll find out more about that very soon as well. Thank you so much. It's always great to see you and um, we'll see you again, hopefully, in a couple of months' time. Pleasure. Thanks, Mary, Mary Crooks, Exec Director of Victorian Women's Trust, talking all about International Women's Day. And we welcome Sally Rippon back for another month. Uh, we have a conversation with Sally, all things children's literature, every month here on The Grapevine. And she's the author, of course, of Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack series and a new series coming out mid-year called Polly and Buster. And also, since we last spoke to her, she's announced an imprint as well. And <laughs> anything else you want to tell us about? Sally? Oh, give me another month. I'll see what else I can come Just stay busy. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll hear more about all those things really, really soon. And today, though, we're going to be talking talking about voices from the intersection uh, and uh, uh, Rebecca Lim has co-put this together. It's a um, incredibly sounding uh, sort of pitch event where Indigenous uh, people, LGBTIQA writers, disability writers can you know, pitch their ideas to publishers. And uh, Rebecca is a multi-talented woman, just like Sally. She's an award-winning writer, illustrator and lawyer based in Melbourne. And she's the author of 16 books for children and young adult readers, including The Astrologer's Daughter, which uh, you may have heard of. And she's, um, as I said, co-founder of Voices from the Intersection. And thanks for coming in, Rebecca. Are you on a buzz from yesterday? Because it was just yesterday this pitch event took place, isn't it? Was it was actually pretty terrifying, so I'm glad it sort of happened and it was uh, the publishers were happy and, and the people who came were happy. They started off shaking and they ended up leaving really delighted. So it was, it was a good day. It's such a great idea. I mean, if, as soon as I heard about it, I was I got really excited about it and it feels like there was a little bit of buzz, at least on social media and a lot of people coming on board to support it because it is really tricky, isn't it, to find those voices and the stories that need to be told potentially by writers who don't have the confidence and, and may have not found an opportunity to meet with a publisher. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of, of the kind of people that came and, and what the setup was for them? Um, well, just taking it back slightly... Um, 
I think a lot of publishers uh, are often sort of seen as a slush pile and faceless. And so what we wanted to try and do is um, bring new voices into the Australian children's marketplace who often don't make it past that barrier. And so to put a human face in front of them and a friendly face that they can actually pitch to rather than having these emerging authors try and battle their way through, you know, 17 terms and conditions before they actually send the email and possibly have it never be responded to. That was kind of the impetus for it. We just wanted to give, you know, a kind of friendlier, more inclusive way for new writers to get into the market. And so what kinds of people did you get there? Are these people who have written before and been published or they had an interest in it? What what sort of level along were they in terms of publishing their stories? It was a real mix. So there was, um, for example, there was a, a Palestinian uh, writer who wanted to do a picture book and that was to raise funds for Palestinian children uh, back home and he hadn't been able to access any publishers. I mean, people basically just saw his submission and just sort of slammed the gates down. But when he actually sat down and explained his illustrations to the... um publishers and the story behind it and where the money was going to they got extremely excited and I think he had a lot of interest so we had writers from um, you know a so-called ethnic or coloured background we had one Indigenous writer and the really sad thing was she was there sort of advocating for a whole group of other Indigenous authors who felt very uncomfortable about actually physically turning up so um we didn't get as many Indigenous um, registrants as we were hoping for, but that was a lot of wariness, I think, on their part. Um, we had a lot of actually physically disabled um, uh, registrants. So there was a blind girl who came with her friend. Um, there was a woman in a wheelchair. There were people with um, multiple sort of chronicities um, who've never had their stories told. And one of the um, great feedbacks we had at the end was... Um, a girl just said, I can't believe people actually asked me about my diversity and, and, and about my actual story because usually I have to hide that kind of thing. So it was a good day for them to actually just speak about themselves and their own stories. And, and actually, I think one of one of the registrants actually was crying with one of the publishers because she said, is there anyone in this country who wants to hear my story? I'm Asian, you know, I'm lesbian. Is there anyone who wants to hear this because I've never seen evidence of that? So, you know, the publisher was like weeping along with her. It was just amazing. So it was a good day. It really was. It was a big mix of people. That sounds extraordinary. And we had Davina Bell in a month ago and she was talking about when she was working in publishing, how it's not that publishers don't want these stories. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's about how to find them and how to reach them. So an amazing project that you've put forward to. And you said it was almost a year in the making and it was all volunteers coming forward. Um, are you hoping that you can do something like this again? We're hoping. I mean, I couldn't actually sleep for the last two weeks because I just thought um, we've built this thing and hopefully people will come. And what I really wanted to show was that there are diverse writers out there and there are diverse readers and, and it's not a you know fictional market that I've made up because often when, when I started talking to publishers they said, who are these people? There's no market for this. Where do I put this thing that you're trying to put together on a shelf? I can't, you know... That's interesting you say that because it's the opposite of what Davina was saying. She's saying, oh, but you know, publishers want to tell these stories, but yeah, it's a market-driven yeah. um, industry. But I wonder if, if this event had some feedback to publishers about being a bit more accessible, you know, not being behind a website that being out in public and and accepting pictures could be could be a way forward. I mean, the unfortunate thing, I think, with they all have the best will in the world, but I think, as one of the publishers was telling me yesterday, she just said, with the slush pile, which she, you know, managed for two years, she said, it just depends on who's picking up the manuscript on the day, you know, how they feel, whether or not they've noticed a spelling error on the first page, or, you know, something about the voice is jarring, and they've just put it away, and that's the end of it. Um, I think a lot of the time, when you have a disadvantaged emerging writer, they don't have the I guess the basic skills or the abilities to actually project their story properly. So there might be the spark of a fantastic idea there, but some bored publishing assistant has picked up this manuscript and just gone, oh, I can't it's a understand horrible what... thought, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, it's as subjective as that. So yeah. it could be just an accident that these people aren't getting through. But I think um, we were talking about this point earlier, um, Sally and I, that I think they look for certain sort of, you know, basic markers that should be there. Does this person know how to spell? Does this person, you know, grammatically, can they express themselves? Is it structurally correct? And I think they look unconsciously, possibly, for those things before they even start to assess whether the story has merit. So a pitching day is quite useful because often these people don't either have the, the skills to express themselves like a polished writer or maybe they were too nervous to submit properly or they didn't read the submission guidelines or they just were too terrified to actually even go in there. And so um, a day like this is good because you, you can see the publisher is a human woman 
she's very friendly she's very willing to help you and she's happy to listen to your story and it doesn't matter if you know you've you've got multiple chronicities but it doesn't show she's still willing to give you the benefit of the doubt which is fantastic so is there an issue as well with i guess the inbuilt assumptions or um priorities that some publishers might place on on the type of story that someone from a particular diverse background might be telling for example the happy refugee narratives yeah. that will make you know mainstream australia feel okay about our our history of um, you know multiculturalism and so on is, is there kind of a is that an added barrier to getting diverse writers published the assumptions that publishers themselves it's possible might i mean lately i think um I've, I've been talking about this a lot there's a there's sort of almost if you're a because i'm a migrant it doesn't show but i came here when i was very young um you're expected to always just write migrant stories you know why is rebecca lim writing fantasy she doesn't you know she doesn't look like a fantasy writer but i think w- when you come from a different background people go well they're palestinian so they can only write a palestinian story or you know they're disabled so they can only write a disabled story and i think what voices is trying to do is say we value all writers and all stories and i was telling sally this often i get called a writer of color in my head i don't think of myself as a writer of color i think of myself as a writer like everyone else but often people will just pigeonhole you and go she's only capable of doing that what is she stepping out of that box for and doing this instead so I think we just need to it's an educational thing I mean it's taken decades and decades to get to this point where people are sort of screaming out for different stories but I think you know the whole neighbours thing where everyone looks the same and they all live in the same street it, it hasn't been like that ever in Australia, I don't think, but that's the that's the image that we project to everybody, which really frustrates me. So Voices is kind of, I mean, it was born out of probably my rage and my hopelessness, but that's that's kind of where it comes from. You know, there are so many stories. And your hopefulness as well. I mean, my hopefulness, that I mean, that you've done. Well, I mean, after yesterday, I mean, definitely hopefulness, because I just was so afraid that, you know, it would almost be like this thing that killed itself, because what if nobody came and then the publishers would say, you've been talking up this delusion for 12 months. You know, there are no other writers who have other stories and they're thankfully not there. They can, <laughs> so they were they were most definitely imaginary friends <laughs> yeah exactly they were all my imaginary friends so it was kind of good that yesterday happened i think because they saw that mm. and it's interesting too isn't it that you've turned to so i've i've read a couple of other interviews with you rebecca where you said when you were growing up you were very drawn to speculative fiction and fantasy and it was and it's interesting that you've begun writing those books yourself and i wonder if that was part of not being able to see yourself reflected in the books you were reading as you were growing up that fantasy is kind of a bigger umbrella that it doesn't represent perhaps a cultural background or or even perhaps some gender in, in some cases you were talking about one crazy book that you were explaining to me about a woman who was really just a brain inside a kind of and she basically body. Yeah, piloted a ship which is fantastic so in fantasy and sci-fi um, you can actually not even have a body and still have adventures and so there's less I mean Amberlin will probably argue with me about this there are lots of inherent issues with spec fic because I think a lot of inherent sexisms you would have seen those covers from the 70s and 80s everyone's bosomy and all the women are wearing bikinis and you know the men are the swashbuckling ones and the women just are prostitutes or whatever but there's there's all that kind of you know subtext happening but as a child you don't kind of understand all that stuff and so you think there's something deficient about the books that I'm reading that are set in Mallory Towers that are you know feature three American kids who are detectives or whatever and you don't know what's wrong with what you're reading, but you know that there's something missing. So for me, I used to just go off to the fantasy sci-fi section and go, today I'm going to read about a spaceship. Or, and it didn't really sort of matter what colour your skin was or, you know, what gender you were. You could be a monster, but you could still have a story, which is fantastic. So I read a lot of fantasy when I was younger. Talking about voices from the intersection, it was a pitch event that was held yesterday and uh, involved um, writers pitching their stories to a whole lot of publishers that turned up to hear them. And I wonder who turned up, which publishers? Was it mainly small, large? Got a really good cross-section. So we had Burbay Publishing, who just does illustrated books, um, which is a fantastic thing in this day and age, just to have a picture book house. Um, Alan and Unwin, HarperCollins, Hachette, um, Walker Books, Penguin Random House, um, Bonnier Publishing. So they're five Mile as well as Echo um, and smaller presses such as Clandestine Press and Midnight Sun and they were all fantastic we had an agent there as well so the agent met with a lot of them and I think she took a lot of names away and she's going to work with people so the really good thing that came out of yesterday is that I checked with people on the way out and they said we've got contacts, we've got people we can write to we know where to take our stories next which is fantastic so even if they got negative feedback 
I think a lot of them were really happy with how it went because the negative feedback they got actually helped them to move, you know, into a new direction with what they were doing. So it was, yeah, just a really positive day, I think. And was it like the UN or like speed dating or something where people had little signs of who they were and <laughs> things um, like yeah, that I, so I mean, you knew who to go to? Because or? it's basically a budgetless thing. So we just, um, I, I said to everyone to make it more festive because it was like this big concrete room in the State Library. Um, people brought their own banners from their publishing houses and then like a trade all, show maybe yeah, pretty much <laughs> and then what what happened was you know alan and unman said I'll, I'll bring some sticky labels to put on people's chests and then you know i said i'll bring the dinner bell to ring at the end of each session so we basically gave them longer than i think this was another thing that set us apart because i didn't know what i was doing i made each of the pictures about eight minutes long which is a long time apparently i didn't realize that um usually you get about three to five minutes so people actually got to get past the my name is part of things and actually talk about their story which is fantastic so everyone said you know the asa pitching day could learn from you guys because you actually need a bit more time to get into the heads of the person that you're talking to before you can even talk about their story and their plot so particularly if it's not something you've done before you know if you've done a writing course you might have honed what the idea of a pitch is and so you might have that but if you're actually wanting to show who you are and the story you want to tell that would take a little bit more time there needs to be a bit of a human connection there that's true which is what you provided oh i hope so but i mean a lot of people were kind of saying you know i've never been encouraged to talk about my Mm. ads before or you know and and so they actually basically could tell people who they were before they started in with their idea and that Mm. was really useful because that way the publishers are taking notes and going i remember that girl she has or you know Mm. she told me about so it's it's a good way to remember people as well and having had one session and and kind of trialed this do you feel like there's enough networks or kind of i don't know i guess infrastructure in place to allow people to to continue down that path and and be supported in the process i'm hoping so because um most people don't know this but the children's publishing industry is basically run by these um overburdened women so a lot of the publishing um, people are kind of like for for the pitching day. They no one was paid, so they took two hours out of their day, left their children at home with the husbands or whatever to come and do this. And you know, a lot of them were saying, "We will take these people forward if they write to us with questions. We will answer them. If they send us something to read, we will read it." So it's really, I think there is enough sort of goodwill to do it, but it's um, it's all really a time commitment. It's a voluntary commitment. So hopefully, you know, that goodwill keeps going to allow us to do another one. And and is it a good idea for a writer if they've got an idea to kind of send a completed manuscript to somebody? I mean, you sort of hear that from maybe the olden days where people sent it in and the right person picked it up and read the whole thing and loved it and saw promise or whatever. Or should, uh, you know, if you have just a good idea, you find the right people that will help you nurture it. I mean, is there a way that you should do this stuff? That's a really interesting question. I don't know um, what Sally's view on it is, but for me, maybe because I look like a flight risk. I mean, most people just go, from you, Rebecca, I need a full manuscript, please. But from some people, you know, like some authors go, I've got a great idea about five girls who do and they go, sold, you're done. But um, I, I guess with these guys, because a lot of them came without, you know, fully fledged ideas. Like some of them said, I just want to do a story about X. And then the publisher would say, I've never heard a story like that before. Go away and write it. That sounds fantastic. Give me a chapter and come back, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I guess it depends on what the publisher's after, how they work, as well as how the person And I think it would be pretty rare that a publisher would take on something because, I mean, it's enough – it's not – just enough to have a story you have to be able to tell that story too but it feels like if these people have an amazing story that potentially a publisher could hook them up with a mentor mm. who could perhaps help them write their story for example the, the li shunqing his famous story is that he went to penguin asking for a ghostwriter and they said why don't you try and write it yourself and he wrote the, a very very big manuscript of Mao's last answer and they edited it back to what oh, it became I didn't realize. Okay. yeah and yeah. so um you know i think sometimes I guess a publisher can see potential in something and then perhaps guide them. But you also need to know that you've got a writer on your hands as yeah, well. Yeah, that's the thing. So I think, you know, obviously um, these guys will have to pass some kind of hurdle about, you know, whether they can actually knuckle down and do it. Because people don't know this, but writing is incredibly, incredibly boring and it takes forever. Like, you know, you love it while you're doing it, but you can agonise over a paragraph for like a week. So I think, you know, obviously they've got to prove themselves and be able to sort of knuckle down and put the bare bones of the story down. But the great thing about yesterday was they're quite willing to go forward with these guys so they've been given the encouragement it's fantastic and one of the things i'm really excited about that you mentioned to me earlier is that you're thinking of potentially doing a virtual pitch program in the future which would be great for reaching people that potentially can't come into melbourne Mm -hmm. whether it's because they have a disability or they live in a rural area or even interstate is that something that 
perhaps we'd like to get publishers on board to help you out with? I, I've basically already sent the email out saying, hi, everyone, thanks for yesterday. How about getting on board for a new one? So I, I could be thundering silence, but we'll see what the feedback is like. But I essentially, like in the last week before we were closing sort of the ticketing so we could have an idea about numbers, I had lots of frustrated emails, and I understand this, where people would say, you've had a nationwide call out for emerging authors, but you haven't made it possible for us to get there. And they've said, you know, can your team fund me getting to Melbourne? And I'm like, I am the team. There is no team. Um, I paid for water. I'm right. buying the water for the day and the lollies and the freddos. So um, what, what I've basically said to these people is like some, some were Indigenous and I said, UQP is looking for people like you right now. So here's an email address. And so it was easy to deal with those guys. But there were other people who said, you know, I'm disabled. I'm in Adelaide. How do I get there? So... I'm hoping that we can do a virtual one so that everyone can just basically send in. I mean, what I'll try and do is put some guidelines up and say you've got to have, you know, a decent sample of work and all that kind of thing. But hopefully that way we can reach people in other states and other territories if we can't physically do another one somewhere else. And what about this um, the self-publishing? Uh, were people interested in what a publishing house can, can offer them versus just doing their own thing? Um, interestingly, yesterday we had someone who I think was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award come. So she was the one who advocated for the other Indigenous authors. So she fully understood the process and she was sort of discussing things at a more complicated level than some of the other registrants. But we had people who'd self-published fantasy novels, um, we had people who'd self-funded picture books, all that kind of thing. So different levels. Some people basically had an idea and nothing else. So it was, yeah, it was just interesting to see. And in all the spare time you have when you're not um, organising Voices from the Intersection, are you working on, on any new books at the moment? Um, I've got... Uh, I, I rarely do this because I just consider myself a genre or a fantasy writer but I'm doing a, a fantasy novel uh, next year for middle readers, so 10 to 12 year olds with Alan and Unwin, so that'll have Chinese dragons and the full, you know, billowy sleeves and all that kind of thing, which I've actually shied away from doing because people would just go, see, she's just writing a Chinese book and I've never <laughs> just written the Chinese book, so I'm going there so we'll see how it goes, but that's what I'm doing next year. <laughs> and you're also talking potentially about a, an anthology that may come together out of this We're hoping, well. um, so because with, um, with Voices, obviously because it's all voluntary um we can only do two or so events a year so we're hoping that um one of the publishers that we worked with yesterday will actually pick up an anthology where we have um a mix of own voice published authors like Jared Thomas, Sally Morgan, um, authors like that, Alice Pung, who are really well known, and then mix them in with um, people who are emerging. So we've identified, I think, four emerging authors who are happy to come on board already, and then we're going to run a contest, um, an open contest for um, other emerging authors to come forward, and then we'll just mix all the memoir or the fiction together and then publish that. So. so own voice, that's when you're telling your own story as opposed to what you are doing, which is telling fantasy stories and avoiding telling the yeah. story about the Malaysians. <laughs> Born, yeah. Sorry, Singaporean-born Australian. That's right. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think with, with what we're trying to do, and this is one of the, the subtexts of voices, it's like trying to expand the notion of what it means to be Australian. Australian isn't just the people and neighbours. Australian isn't just the kinds of stories that we've always seen. Australian is a whole bunch of things, and and that's why we called it Voices from the Intersection because a lot of people are intersectional in the sense that, you know, they might be discriminated against as women, but they also might be discriminated against as a disabled person or a, um, you know, neurodiverse person or something. So there's a lot of people who are not just suffering one kind of discrimination. There's a whole bunch of different things that interact together. So we're kind of trying to reach out to those writers and have them come forward. Great. And they are there. Yes, they are. They there exist. Proof. <laughs> yeah, they are. My imagination, so that's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for coming in. That's just so much in there. Um, voices from the intersection, and I, I don't know how do we contact you if we if we fit the bill. How do we get in uh, touch? There's a, there's the a voices email. Yeah. So uh, what we do is we've got a, because we're so lo-fi, we've got a voices from the intersection Facebook page and that's pretty much the only way you can reach us because people have said, why aren't they on Twitter? Why aren't they on Insta? We just, it's me. So <laughs> it's me and Amberlyn. So we just really can't run all that stuff. So if you want to reach us, we're on Facebook. This is Amberlyn Quemolina, who's over in WA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're sort of East Coast, West Coast, and we just kind of like communicate by phone or by email. So we're just going to try and run this thing virtually from where we are. But Look be on patient, Facebook. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we can put a link up um, on the Grapevine Facebook page. Let's go Facebook here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Thanks Sally. Sally Rippon um, will be back next month yeah. with someone else amazing. Um, and uh, Rebecca Lim, Voices from the Intersection, also a writer in her own right, and uh, look out for a new book next year. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks guys. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.